0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 20. I'm going to read the verses 1 to 18, focusing on 11 to 18. John 20 and verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And the disciples went away again to their own homes, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. So far, the reading of God's holy word. James Montgomery Boyce recalls the story of when Wellington, the British general, faced Napoleon. Everyone in England was anxious to hear the outcome of the battle. There were no telegrams or radio sets in those days, but everyone knew that a great battle was pending, and they were all eagerly awaiting the results. A signalman was placed on the top of Winchester Cathedral with instructions to keep his eye on the sea. When he received a message, he was to pass it on to another man on a hill. That man was to pass it to another. And so it was to go until news of the battle was relayed to London and then across England. Finally, a ship was sighted through thick fog on the English Channel. The signalman on board the ship sent the first word. Wellington, the next word was, defeated. Then fog prevented the ship from being seen. Wellington, defeated. The message was sent across England, and gloom descended over the countryside. But after two or three hours, the fog lifted, and the signal came again. Wellington, defeated the enemy. The word quickly spread and England rejoiced. What appeared to be defeat was no defeat at all. Wellington defeated the enemy. Congregation, when Jesus died, gloom descended over the disciples and friends of Jesus. It appeared as though Jesus had been defeated. His enemies had finally gotten the upper hand. Those who were the closest to him experienced profound disillusionment and sadness. When Jesus died, there was a sense in which they also died. Their hopes and dreams died with him. But dear friends, what a wonderful day it was when Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. The disciples and friends of Jesus realized that he was not defeated after all. The resurrection revealed that Jesus defeated the enemy. What unspeakable joy flooded the hearts of those who loved him. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning were the darkest days of their lives. But everything changed when they learned that Jesus was alive. This morning we want to focus on John 20 verses 11 to 18 in which the risen Lord said to Mary, Why are you weeping? From our text, please note three things. Number one, a terrible situation. Number two, a tender admonition. Number three, a touching conversation. A terrible situation. Mary Magdalene was among those who followed Jesus to the cross. She witnessed the crucifixion. She heard the cry of Jesus from the cross and she witnessed this terrible and agonizing death. She was also present when Jesus was removed from the cross, wrapped in linen by Joseph and Nicodemus and laid in a tomb. Mary Magdalene saw the whole procedure from beginning to end. What immense grief flooded her soul as her master suffered at the hands of evil men. Mary deeply loved the Lord Jesus Christ, why? Because she had been the recipient of his special grace. Children, what had Jesus done for her? Do you remember? What had Jesus done for her? We learn from Luke eight verse two that Mary Magdalene had once been what? Demon possessed. She had been under the power of the devil. To the mercy of Jesus, seven demons had come out of her. If you read the Gospels and study the various accounts of demon possession, you realize that it was a horrible, horrible thing. The result of demon possession was often strange and irrational behavior and mental torment. Those who were demon possessed sometimes cut themselves fell on the ground, foamed at the mouth, fell into the fire, spoke with a voice not their own, displayed unusual strength, fell into convulsions, or even predicted the future through a spirit of divination. We don't know how Mary conducted herself prior to her deliverance, but being possessed by seven demons must have been a dreadful experience. She knew the powers of darkness and what it was like to be under the sway of Satan. After the seven demons were gone, Mary came to enjoy an entirely new life. She experienced freedom, deliverance, and joy in the Lord. The power of evil that had so strongly dominated her life and sapped her joy was broken by a superior power, the power of Jesus. But now our master was gone, gone. He was dead and buried. Mary was desperate and filled with grief. Friday was a day of sorrow. Saturday was a day of mourning and Sunday was another day of intense grief. We read in verse one of John 20, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. The Sabbath was over, and it was early Sunday morning when Mary made her way to the tomb. John mentions only Mary Magdalene, but when you compare the Gospels, you discover that she was not alone. There was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and possibly others. It was a group of women who walked through the darkness of early morning toward the tomb. It was a time in the morning when the sun was just beginning to rise. These women had come to the tomb not only to grieve over the loss of their loved one, but also to show him honor. Mark and Luke tell us their intent. They brought spices that they might come and anoint him. John 19 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, together with Nicodemus, had already anointed Jesus with about a hundred pounds worth of a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and they wrapped his body in strips of fine linen. The women had witnessed that whole procedure on Friday, yet on Sunday they came to anoint him with their own spices which they had prepared. These women must have felt that this was the last thing they could do for their Lord they came to the tomb not because they anticipated a resurrection but for the purpose of anointing a corpse. Although Jesus had specifically said that he would rise from the tomb on the third day, the women did not remember or understand. They came not to praise the living but to honor the dead. As the women made their way to the tomb, They knew they had a problem. How would they be able to remove the stone from the door of the tomb? It was extremely heavy, far too heavy for these women to handle. The account in Matthew gives the solution to their problem. There was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. The stone, which had probably been set in place by several men, was rolled back in a moment by an angel. When the women came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away, Mary Magdalene left the other women and ran back to tell Peter and John that someone had taken the body away from the tomb. Now, it's not that easy to piece together the exact chronology, but what seems to have happened is this. When Mary Magdalene saw the open tomb, she ran to tell Peter and John. While she was gone, the angel appeared to the other women and proclaimed the good news of the resurrection. He is not here, for he is risen. The women that departed from the tomb, says Matthew, with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples word. After they left, Peter and John, having received word from Mary Magdalene, came running at top speed to the tomb. Peter and John looked into the tomb and found it to be, as Mary said, empty. Verse 10 of John 20 says that the two disciples went away again to their own homes. After Peter and John departed, Mary Magdalene returned to the tomb, only this time she was alone. Our text says in verse 11 that Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. The other women were gone, Peter and John were gone, and Mary remained alone at the tomb. Mary Magdalene had missed the announcement of the resurrection that the other women received, and consequently she was still in great distress. First they killed Jesus, and now someone took his body, so she thought. Verse 11 says, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And what did she see in the tomb? Verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. The tomb was no longer empty. There were two angels inside. The angels had a question for Mary. Woman, why are you weeping? Their question brings us to point number two, a tender admonition. A tender admonition. Why are you weeping? Congregation, the question was not designed to elicit information. Rather, it was a tender, gentle expression of disapproval and reproof. Why are you weeping? Mary should not be weeping, she should be rejoicing. This wasn't a time for sorrow, it was a time for joy and thanksgiving. If the body was still in the tomb, then she would have every reason to weep. If the body of her Lord was still lying cold, then grief would be the fitting response. If Mary had found what she was looking for, we would all have reason to weep, all of us. People of God, the historical resurrection of Jesus is a very central doctrine of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the cross would remain the darkest page in human history. What did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul said that without the resurrection of Christ, the whole message of the gospel is a sham, and those who believe the gospel are deceived. His apostolic preaching was vain, empty, worthless, and without substance. If Jesus remained in the tomb, then the cornerstone of the Christian faith is removed, then there is no Christianity. Jesus cannot be the author of salvation if he is himself conquered by death. If he did not rise from the dead, then his death accomplished absolutely nothing. If Christ has not risen, you are still in your sins. Paul said that without the historical bodily resurrection, Christians are to be pitied more than all people. You are pathetically deluded. Instead of going to church, you might as well go shopping or golfing. Rudolf Boltmann. A New Testament scholar who died back in 1976, he said the resurrection is only a myth which had been fabricated by the early Christian congregation. It did not take place as a true event in time and space. Liberal theologians have taught that when Christ died, his followers wanted him back so badly that they fabricated a resurrection account which eventually made its way into the Bible. Such reasoning, brothers and sisters, is utterly suicidal. It is to stab at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is an attack upon the very life of the gospel. (coughs) Yes, if Mary had found what she was looking for, we would all have reason to weep. However, the tomb was empty. And Mary needed to know that the tomb, that the empty tomb was, was not cause for sorrow. It was cause for thanksgiving and worship. Mary's tears should have been tears of joy. Had not her Lord taught her that he would rise, had He not instructed them concerning the resurrection? "Mary, why are you weeping? You should be singing. Why the anxiety? You should be at peace. This should be the happiest day of your life. Congregation Mary was so overwhelmed with sorrow because of the terrible events of the last few days that she was emotionally frazzled. Notice in verse 13, notice that she was not even frightened, startled, or shocked by the appearance of the angels. These heavenly beings, clothed in white, seemed to have no impact upon her whatsoever. She was so preoccupied with the whereabouts of the body that she did not even consider the awesomeness of this angelic encounter. They have taken away my Lord. Brothers and sisters, isn't Mary's response to the empty tomb typical of the way we often respond to the trials of life? How often are we anxious when there's no reason to be anxious? How often do we grieve or complain when God is in fact working out a great blessing in our life? We need to trust that our sovereign God does what is right and good. Mary was grieving over that which was the greatest blessing in history, the empty tomb of Jesus. Needless anxiety, pointless worry, unnecessary pain. And there's also something else here, congregation, that captures my attention every time I read this passage, and I love pointing this out to people. Does the position of the angels in verse 12 bring to mind something from the Old Testament? What do the two angels sitting on either side of the place where Jesus had lain remind you of? One was at the head, and the other at the feet. Doesn't it remind you of the Ark of the Covenant? I don't know if that's deliberate here, but it certainly gives us a beautiful picture. You'll recall that on the Ark of the Covenant, there were two golden cherubim facing each other on either side of the mercy seat. It was on the mercy seat that the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice once a year to make atonement for sin. By the shedding of his blood on Friday, Jesus became the true and eternal mercy seat for sinners. The blood of the old covenant sprinkled on the mercy seat pointed to the blood of this perfect sacrificial lamb. The angels are here positioned on either side of the absent body of Jesus. The blood, the the body which was offered to make atonement for the sins of his people. The position of the angels reminds us that Christ is our mercy seat. It is in him that forgiveness is found. And you can be reconciled with the righteous, holy God. Through Jesus Christ, mercy Instead of judgment, comes to the sinner. He is the eternal mercy seat for those who have trusted in him. Have you trusted him? Have you trusted him? Mary had every reason to rejoice. Not only had Jesus cast seven demons out of her, but he gave his life so that she may experience eternal peace with God. The lamb was slain, yet the lamb is alive. Unfortunately, Mary's grief hindered her from grasping these amazing truths. After responding to the angels of the tomb, Mary probably heard something behind her and she turned to have a look. Verse 14 tells us, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. How could she not know that it was Jesus? There could be several reasons. First of all, she was not expecting to see Jesus. She was not expecting to see Jesus. Her last memory of him was that of a bleeding, battered corpse. She did not expect to see him alive. She was convinced that the body had been removed from the tomb. She was so preoccupied with her own contemplations that she didn't even consider the possibility that Jesus had risen. Secondly, Mary's vision was probably impaired because her eyes were full of tears. Mary had been weeping for some time, and therefore her vision was probably not what it usually was. Thirdly, perhaps Mary did not recognize Jesus because he looked different than before. He looked different than before. When Jesus appeared to the men from Emmaus and walked with them along the road, they had no idea who he was. Jesus taught them from the scriptures and even entered their home, but they did not recognize him until their eyes were opened by the Lord. Also in John 21, when the disciples were fishing, they spoke to Jesus who was standing on the shore, but at first they did not recognize him. There was something different about the risen Lord so that even his close companions did not always know him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Resurrection includes transformation. Perhaps Mary's inability to recognize Jesus was due to a combination of these things. She was not expecting to see Jesus. Her eyes were blinded by tears, and he looked different than before. Well, in verse 15, Jesus spoke, which brings us to point number three, a touching conversation. A touching conversation. Jesus repeated the angel's question. He said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And then he added, whom are you seeking? Mary evidently thought that these questions were only the concerned expression of a kind stranger. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, verse 15b, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary thought that perhaps for some reason this gardener may have removed the body. If he did, she was prepared to take it away. Whether or not Mary was even capable of carrying the body or whether she had a tomb to place it in are questions that she had probably not considered. The only thing that mattered to her at this moment was that the body of her Lord be given an honorable burial. Mary was not aware that the questions of this individual were more than just the the curious concern of a kind stranger. These questions, as the questions of the angels in the tomb, were actually a mild rebuke. Why are you weeping? Is this the proper time for weeping? Whom are you seeking? A dead, defeated, conquered Messiah? A lifeless corpse? A decomposing deliverer? Whom are you seeking? A defeated Messiah? Messiah? Although Mary did not realize it at the time, Jesus was challenging her concept of the Messiah. Although she was deeply committed to Jesus and loved him dearly, her thoughts of him were still far too small. The congregation, isn't that often true for us as well? Even though we have a more complete knowledge than Mary did, isn't it true that our thoughts of him are often far too small. Don't we often underestimate the power of Jesus? Don't we often have wrong concepts of the Messiah? Mary should not have been looking for a lifeless corpse. She should have come to worship a risen, exalted, triumphant, conquering Savior. Her estimate of Him was still far too small. Nevertheless, with touching compassion, Jesus addressed her by using just one simple word. Mary. Mary. That one word was enough to cure her blindness. The familiar voice of her master calling her by name was enough to turn her world right side up again. The sheep know the voice of the good shepherd. He calls his sheep by name, and they follow him because they know his voice. Her anguish, grief, despair, and perplexity vanished. As she recognized the sound of that one word, Mary. What joy must have flooded her soul in that moment. What happiness and rejoicing. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The supreme teacher, the supreme master was alive. Rabboni. From what follows in verse 17, it seems as though Mary probably fell to the ground and clung to his feet. Verse 17 contains a present imperative with a negative, which usually signals the stopping of something in progress. Don't keep on doing what you're doing. Verse 17 could be translated like this, Jesus said to her, do not keep clinging to me, stop holding on to me. Mary had probably fallen to the ground clinging to his feet, just as we find in Matthew 28 verse 9. Why did Jesus tell her to stop? Why did Jesus tell her to stop? Was there something wrong with touching him? Was it unlawful for Mary to touch his resurrected body? No, it was not wrong to touch him. In verse 27 of this chapter, Jesus even invited Thomas to touch him. And in Matthew 28, the other women held him by the feet and worshipped him without receiving his rebuke. Why then did Jesus tell her to stop clinging to him? The wording of verse 17 is rather difficult. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my Father. What does Jesus' ascension have to do with Mary's conduct at this moment? Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing here is correcting a misunderstanding. When Mary saw Jesus, she clung to him as though now things were going to continue as they were before the crucifixion. She may have thought that Jesus' resurrection was like the resurrection of Lazarus. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he resumed the life that he had left. Life went on as it was before. The friends of Lazarus fellowshiped with him just as they had done before. Perhaps Mary did not realize that Jesus' resurrection was different. He was risen to a new life, nothing like the old one he had left. The fellowship would not be the same as before. The fellowship would certainly continue, but it would be far richer and more complete. Mary was rejoicing in her Lord's bodily presence. But in doing so, it seems that she was missing an important point. The crucifixion and resurrection had created a whole new relationship. Jesus was more than her earthly rabboni. Her teacher. He was her Lord, God and Christ. The former mode of fellowship was history. Jesus would soon ascend to the Father. Then Mary would know a spiritual fellowship that would far surpass the fellowship of his bodily physical presence. Jesus was not going to resume his daily visible association with his his followers. The communion and fellowship that they would enjoy following his ascension would be an intimacy of a new kind. The intimacy would not be in a physical, bodily presence, but through the outpouring of the Spirit of Christ upon his church. And so Jesus said to Mary, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Mary had to readjust her thinking. She was clinging to his humanity without a proper recognition of this new relationship. Once Jesus ascended, then she could cling to him, not in a physical way, but in a more intimate spiritual relationship. Brothers and sisters, That relationship was not only for Mary and the disciples. It's also for you. It's for you. This morning you do not cling to the bodily presence of the resurrected Lord. You are to cling to him by faith. You are to commune with him through the spirit of Christ who has been poured out upon the church. Jesus said in John 16, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. When he, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent forth the Spirit upon his people so that you and I may enjoy continued, unbroken fellowship with our risen Lord. Dear friends, do you know that fellowship? Fellowship with the risen Christ through the Spirit of Christ. Mary was focusing on the physical bodily presence. Jesus said to her, Mary, do not cling to me. Verse 17, notice what he says next. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Instead of clinging to the past, Mary was called to look to the future to a new, fuller, richer, spiritual fellowship. Mary was given a message to communicate to the disciples, this message whom Jesus referred to as what? My brothers. Just a few days earlier, his disciples had forsaken him and fled, yet Jesus says they are still his brethren. Verse 17. Although they had deserted Jesus, Jesus had not deserted them. Mary had to go to them to announce not only the resurrection, but also the coming ascension and the new relationship that this established. I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, believers can call the Father of Jesus our Father, our God. Jesus is the Son of God by nature. Believers through Him are sons by adoption. Because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation, you congregation may call God your Father. You may be called sons and daughters. You who have sinned against all the commandments of God and broken his covenant, you could be restored as a brother of Christ, a sister of Christ, a son of God, a daughter of God. By clinging to the exalted Jesus by faith, you may enjoy all the privileges of sonship. You may cry out, Abba, Father. What a privilege, congregation. That privilege is granted to you because the tomb is empty. The Lord is your God and Father because the tomb is empty. You have reason to weep this morning, not for sorrow as Mary did, but for joy over the blessings that are yours, justification, sanctification, and glorification. May your tears be tears of joy. Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. The strife is o'er, the battle done, the victory of life is won, the song of triumph has begun. Hallelujah. What an amazing Savior. What a complete redeemer, what a gracious master. If you've trusted him, then his resurrection is a sure pledge of your blessed resurrection. One writer said this, when Jesus died, he died as my representative and I died in him. When he arose, he rose as my representative, and I arose in him. When he ascended up on high and took his place at the right hand of the Father in glory, he ascended as my representative, and I ascended in him. And today I am seated in Christ with God in the heavenlies. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open sepulcher and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. I look at the open sepulcher and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. Dear friends, maybe some of you are uncertain about your life and your future. If that is the case, I urge you to look to the risen Jesus and the empty tomb. Trust in the crucified and risen Savior. If you trust in Jesus, you will be blessed with all the privileges that are showered upon the children of God. Three words can be used to summarize the benefits of the resurrection as outlined in Lord's Day 17. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Because of Jesus' resurrection, you may call God your Father Through the Spirit of God, you may enjoy unbroken fellowship with your risen Lord. Listen, apart from union with Jesus, you are a covenant breaker on the road to hell. But through faith in his name, you are a brother, a sister of Christ, and a son, a daughter of God. If you trust in yourself, you will fail miserably. But if you embrace the resurrected and ascended Lord, your life will be rich and your soul satisfied. Rest in him and you can be assured he died as your representative, he rose as your representative and he ascended as your representative. Look to the open tomb and know that the atonement has been accepted. Through faith in Jesus, there no longer remains a single sin on you. May that be your confidence. Lord, by the stripes which wounded thee, from death's dread sting thy servants free, that we may live and sing to thee. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning for the greatness of the resurrection incomprehensible to our puny minds. And yet our hope, our hope for this life and for eternity. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you died, you died as our representative. When you rose, you rose as our representative. And when you ascended, you ascended as our representative. That, Lord, we have no need for sorrow because the battle has been won. The victory belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are more more than conquerors through him who loved us. We pray, Lord, that you will give to each and every one here that gift of saving faith to believe and to trust in the message and the power of the resurrection. And so, Lord, may we live that new life, fellowship and communion with the risen and exalted Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we truly cultivate and enjoy that communion, no longer clinging to the physical body of our Lord Jesus, but clinging to you by faith, by the power of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you will convict our hearts here this morning, each and every one, that we would look to Jesus And find all that we need and all that our heart longs for in him. Lord, we're reminded that apart from him, we are covenant breakers. Deserving of hell. So Lord, if there are any here who are still in that state. That you will transform their heart. That they may know you and love you and live for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.